Thanks, guys. Morning, everybody. It's really nice to see you. Um, we are beginning a new series called Building Resilience. This is actually the first of two series based on the book of 2 Corinthians. Um, and it's under our Multiply heading. Last week, I spoke at... Sorry, just give me one second to get myself organized here. So I can actually see my notes. Um, last week I spoke about uh, our word multiply, which I think the Lord has invited us to take as a word for the year, for 2023. I talked about it in some detail last week, so I'm not going back over that again. But just to say that we do see multiplication and fruitfulness throughout the Bible. We've seen it in our, through our own story as a church and also as a movement. And it's the, 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 the idea of multiplication is in our DNA. And so in 2023, we're trying to respond to an invitation that we sense from God to start taking some significant steps towards a posture of growth where we multiply disciples, where we multiply leaders, where we multiply small groups and ministries and communities and ultimately multiply churches. And any journey of multiplication, any journey that requires pressing into growth, any journey that requires making progress in the kingdom of God is going to likely not be straightforward. The truth is it will test our faith and it will probably be uncomfortable and it will definitely require a degree of resilience. And so our first series that we're pushing into is resilience. Now I'm defining resilience as the capacity to withstand or recover quickly from difficulties. Now, as some of you are parents, we're parents, and there are values and character traits that as parents we have tried to instill in our children, stuff like kindness and honesty and generosity and emotional intelligence. One of the most important things that we have tried to instill in our kids is to teach them resilience in the face of the inevitable challenges of life. Growing up is tricky and the world can be a brutal place and people can be savage. And we can't control or police our kids. We can't control the interactions that they have with the world. At some point they have to find out how difficult life can be. And they're gonna to have to learn to manage themselves. And some friends, some very good friends of ours um, taught us this brilliant bit of parenting advice many years ago, and it was this. They said, you can either teach your children to swim or spend the rest of your life trying to keep them away from water. And they weren't just talking about physical swimming. And so learning to swim in a world that we can't control will re require resilience, physical, emotional, and spiritual resilience, dealing with difficult people and tricky relationships, navigating the harsh realities of life. That can be really challenging. And the stress can impact our physical health and our mental well-being. And, our, and it really affects how we relate to God. I know plenty of people whose faith has taken a battering and sometimes never recovers, just trying to come to terms with the difficult stuff in life. Um, I have a little thing that I've I say to people as I'm chatting, um, people who are growing up in their 20s and 30s and 40s, um, I, I, don't know how it's, I don't know if it's true, but it's certainly proved to be true um, in, with most people I know. Um, and that's this. I say to people, if you've made it to the age of 30 without experiencing some kind of major life crisis, it's probably around the corner. 
It's not very encouraging or cheerful. But the reality is, the reality is it's true for the most part. Whether it's the loss of a loved one, whether it's a personal relationship breakup, whether it's a family trauma, whether it's the loss of a job or a crisis of faith or one of those other things. Actually, no, I won't go there. <laughs> people, who, people who have to deal with that stuff in their, in their early life, brutal as it is, tend to grow up and get more resilience. Actually, processing trauma in a healthy way and moving on requires resilience, and, it's a, and it's, as we practice that, we grow in it. And so many of us experienced a lot of trauma through the pandemic, for example. Perhaps many of us are still experiencing it now. The, just even the, the, the political upheaval and economic challenges that are going on the world, in the world are traumatic. But the Bible has a lot to say about resilience and not just how to cope with suffering and how to cope with trauma and difficult things, actually how to grow through it. And that's Paul's key theme here as he starts this letter to Corinthians. Why don't you turn up to Corinthians? We're going to read from chapter one. Before we read it, though, I just need to give you a little bit of an introduction to the book because it's not the most straightforward of books. Now, you probably know this, but just in case you don't, the New Testament is made up of several documents, books, about 27, I think it is, altogether. The first four are Gospels. They are accounts of the life of Jesus. The next one, Acts, is an account, a historical account of the life of the church, the early church. And all of the rest of the books, bar the one at the end, are letters. Letters from apostles, letters written to new churches to teach and encourage the believers. And many of those books, those letters were written by one man, and that's Paul, the Apostle Paul. Whenever we say Paul, we just laugh because we have Paul here. And so when we, in our family, when we say Paul said this, we're saying, are we saying Paul Phillips or are we saying the Apostle Paul? I don't know. There's, 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 you know, there's quite a lot of overlap between the two of them, if I'm, if I'm honest. Um, but today, if I say Paul, I'm talking about the Apostle Paul. Um, he was a Jewish scholar. He was a Pharisee. He was a persecutor and murderer of Christians until his radical conversion. And then he became an evangelist and a preacher and a missionary and a church planter and an apostle. He was so radically changed by his encounter with Jesus that he essentially completely flipped his life on its head. And instead of going around killing Christians, went around making Christians. He went around traveling and preaching and establishing churches and appointing leaders. And then he would do that for a bit and then he would move on to another place and do the same thing again and again and again and again. He was a serial church planter. I think it's fair to say that we probably wouldn't be here if it wasn't for him. As he went, he also wrote letters back to the churches he'd established to help explain and teach the believers about what it meant to follow Jesus. They didn't have a New Testament at the time. They only had the Jewish scriptures. Okay, They were working out their theology and actually the letters that Paul sent, wrote and then sent, were read aloud in churches, then passed to another church and read aloud there. They were copied and recopied and circulated around the churches where they had the effect of encouraging and discipling the believers as they grew. And so the churches continued to grow and the gospel continued to spread. And eventually, all these letters were, or many of these letters were brought together several, two, three hundred years later in a document which we call the New Testament. That in itself is a fascinating story, but I don't have time to tell you that. The Corinthian church was established by Paul some years before this letter to Corinthians was written. He was in Corinth for about 18 months. 
during one of his missionary journeys. You can read that story in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 18 has the whole story. It's not very long. It's not, the account of it isn't very long. Um, and by the time that he writes this letter, some stuff has happened. It's by far more the most personal of Paul's letters. It's filled with deep emotion because it's written in response to quite a complicated history between Paul and the Corinthian church. And what actually went on isn't explicitly described. What we're reading is Paul's response, response to it. And we have to kind of reconstruct the story um, from just sort of reading around. But having moved on from Corinth to plant more churches, essentially what happened is this. Paul received some disturbing reports about stuff that was going on in the church back in Corinth. There was trouble. There was acute division, okay? You've got a number of different leaders who've stepped up and started talking and and taking authority and people sort of getting into groups behind these different leaders and arguing about what they say. It seems that there were relationships were all over the place and there was just a lot of casual sex. There was fierce disagreement about food laws and there was drunkenness in church gatherings. That's just the stuff that we know about, okay? that some stuff was going on and Paul wrote in response to what he'd heard a pretty stern letter saying, guys, this needs to stop. And that's the book that we call 1 Corinthians, the letter 1 Corinthians. He wrote that letter to the church and encouraged them, called them to repent and reform the way they were doing things. And sadly, though, many of the church ignored Paul's letter or certainly ignored the call, the challenge, and they rejected his words and continued to live as if Paul and his teaching had no authority in their lives. And so the next thing he did was he decided, well, I have to go there. So he traveled, diverted one of his journeys, traveled back to Corinth to try and deal with this and resolve the tension. But when he got there, he still found that most of the church was in open rebellion against him. And so not sure what to do, he decided he'd suffer that humiliation and he'd leave without retaliating, without trying to put up a fight in order that he could extend mercy to the Corinthians. And he got back to Ephesus and he sent them a tearful and severe letter, which we don't have because it's been lost. We don't have that, but he he refers to it. And in that letter, he seems to urge them to repent. Please, you really need to think about what you're doing. And it seems that most of the Corinthians did pay attention to this letter and they did repent and they did apologize. And so Paul writes another letter and that's the letter that we're going to read. We're going to read it for this month and we're going to look at it next month as well. So it's not very long. Um, to Corinthians. If you have the time, I would encourage you to read it, but do bear in mind this backstory that's going on. He writes this letter to um, assure them of his love and commitment to them, to encourage them that as part of their repentance, they need to fully repent and they need to see through their financial commitments, which we'll come to next month. Uh, It's later in the book. And also he writes to teach them and to challenge the rebellious minority who still under the influence of these other leaders are continuing to reject Paul and his gospel. All of that informs 2 Corinthians, the background to 2 Corinthians. Um, And that would explain why, if you read it through as a whole book, you will notice that there are some quite sudden shifts in tone and focus. It's good to know the background. It's good to know. Um, but despite all the emotional stuff that's going on and the explaining that Paul is doing, there are still some beautiful and rich passages in this book that, where Paul just expounds um, his uh, ideas about Jesus, about the cross, about suffering, about endurance and repentance. 
and the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. And it includes some really familiar poetic phrases. Um, if, if I was, um, was I, when I read through this, I, I, just picked, I, re, I read through the whole book in about um, half an hour, three quarters of an hour. And I just picked up a certain number of, I thought, oh, that's here. Oh, that's here. And there's a certain number of verses, which I mean, I might, I might have called them Paul's greatest hits, to be honest. Um, we are the aroma of Christ. You've heard that before. Where the spirit of the Lord, we've just sung this this morning. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We who with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. We carry this treasure in jars of clay. And a personal favourite, we walk by faith and not by sight. And I know that one because I learned a kid's song about it many years ago. And it has some brilliant actions. And I well, walk by faith and not by sight. Anyway, um, <clears throat> I'm not aware of any false teachers who have infiltrated Winchester Vineyard at this point. Um, if you have, perhaps you come and tell me afterwards. Um, so this is, I'm, we're not teaching two Corinthians in response to a specific situation here in the church. But we do live in a culture which I would say has largely lost sight of the radical teachings of Jesus. Where ideas like suffering and generosity are at best misunderstood, probably ignored, and sometimes directly opposed. In the media, in the culture that we live in, so much of what Paul writes, though, is relevant, it's challenging, and it's encouraging, and it's life-giving. And so that's how we're going to focus on this book for, the next, um, for this week and the next two weeks. And as I said, I want to read from chapter 1 and verses 3 to 14, um, which is called, titled, The God of All Comfort. And I'm reading from the NIV version of the Bible. Praise be to God. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. So I don't have the words of this whole thing here, so I would encourage you to have a look at it if you can, if you've got it on your phone or you've got a Bible. Let's start that again. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. As you help us by your prayers, then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favour granted us in answer to the prayers of many. Now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relations with you with integrity and godly sincerity. We have done so relying not on worldly wisdom but on God's grace. For we do not write to you anything you cannot read or understand. 
And I hope that as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us, just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. I want to mainly focus on the first four or five verses that we read there. And I want to talk about three things. I want to talk about the comfort of God. I want to talk about the sufferings of Jesus. I want to talk about strength and hope that comes when we are in our weakness. And so looking at the comfort of God, the, the letter opens with a fairly standard greeting. And this is quite typical of Paul. Um, he will always start a letter with a whole sort of passage of prayer. This is how I'm praying for you. I'm remembering all of these things that God is and does. And he's reminding the Corinthians that God is the father of compassion and care and comfort. He's using the same word for comfort that Isaiah uses Excuse me. in chapter 40 when he says, comfort my people. Whatever has happened, whatever is happening, whatever will happen, Paul says God is always there for us. He uses the words we and us a lot, which feels a bit like the royal we, because sometimes it's just, he's clearly just referring to himself in the first person. But I find it encouraging and helpful because it feels inclusive of all the believers. And that's the ones who are reading this in Corinth, the ones in the other churches that got to read this letter, and the ones who are in Winchester Vineyard in the year 2023, also reading Paul's encouraging words. This passage is about us just as much as it's about them. And Paul's opening statement contains the word comfort some nine times in five verses. You can tell what he's trying to say. He's trying to make a point here. And it's interesting because the translation doesn't completely capture the richness of the word that Paul's using in Greek, which is the word paraklesis. So when I think of comfort, this is the kind of image that I think of. There, there, you're a bit hurt. Come and have a cuddle with mum or dad or whoever. We tend to think that Comfort is simply easing someone's distress or their grief or their pain. And yes, comfort is that. But the word that Paul uses, paraclesis, has more facets than that. It means to call someone to come near. It means to make a strong appeal or exhortation or encouragement. It means to treat someone in an inviting or friendly way. It even implies, I think, some kind of salvation. Let me read you, in fact, I've got it here. This is a quote from Tom Wright, one of the um, best New Testament scholars, in my opinion. And he's talking about this word, the word that Paul uses for comfort. He says, the sense of this word is one person being with another, speaking words which change their mood and situation, giving them courage, new hope, new direction, new insights, which will alter the way they face the next moment, the next day, the rest of their life. This is not just a there, 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 you're going to feel better soon, right? There is a much deeper meaning to this. Paul is talking about a father who is so there for his people that in our distress, he is ready for us to call on him. Yes, he can ease our pain, but more than that, he will encourage us and help us see how, in Tom Wright's words, we can change our situation, how we can step forward in our faith with faith and hope, how we can literally turn our lives around. As uh, the psalm, psalm 40 says, he picked me up, he turned me around, he set my feet on higher ground. 
Was that Psalm 40 or was it Van Morrison? I can't remember. I think, I think Van Morrison said it like that. But those, that's the sense of the word. Um, despite, here's one more quote from Tom Wright. He goes on. He make, he's making a big point here. If we said console or consolation, that would pick up one aspect of this. But when you console someone, you simply bring them back from utter despair to ordinary unhappiness. The word Paul uses here over and over again does more than that. It meets people where they are. It brings them right onto the point where they're strong enough to see new hope and new possibilities and new ways forward. Isn't that encouraging? So despite whatever has gone on between Paul and the Corinthian church, despite the pain and the trauma of broken relationships, despite Paul's sadness and his own suffering, His encouragement here is that whatever has gone on, whatever has gone on for each of us, God is there for us. He's there for Paul. He's there for the church. He's there for this church. He's there for you. He's there for me. Whatever pain or trauma or broken relationships or suffering we may have experienced or we may be experiencing, God is there, the God of all comfort. That's just as true for us as it was for the Corinthians. He does want to meet us where we are. He does want to bring us right on to the point where we're strong enough to see new hope and new possibilities and new ways forward. That to me sounds like more than comfort. It sounds like renewal. It sounds like restoration. It sounds like God. And if you're in a place where this is resonating for you and you're thinking, God, I need some of that, then blimey, I'll be first in the queue, but I'll also pray for you. Okay, we would love to pray for you today if that's where you're at. How does this work? Paul goes on to talk about the sufferings of Christ. Not just the God of comfort, but the sufferings of Christ. And Paul goes on to explain how this works, how unsurprisingly for Paul, he's teaching about Jesus, about Jesus' death on the cross, and how when we take, when when we grasp hold of that, when we um, live within that, then something happens and something works within us. And Paul uses this verse in in these words in verse 5. He says, we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ. And so our comfort abounds through Christ. What does that mean to share in the sufferings of Christ? What Paul is not saying is that somehow we were responsible for the atonement of sin. That's not what Paul's saying. He he makes that pretty clear elsewhere. That's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus did alone on the cross. But I think what Paul is saying is that we can endure sufferings because of Jesus' death on the cross. Because we can identify with him in the pain or perhaps more realistically, because he can identify with us in the pain. You see, I don't think in any way God causes suffering. And that's a whole another topic. But he can and does choose to identify with us in the middle of it. He's always near. And even God can use the tricky seasons when we're suffering, to help us grow. Now, suffering is tricky. Philosophically, it's hard to explain. There's just no way of avoiding it. People who've been brought up in the secular West, which is probably most of us, people who don't know Jesus have a serious question to answer about suffering. What are we going to do with it? What are we going to do with pain? Here's another bleak quote from uh, Tim Keller. 
It's not just me. No matter what precautions we take, no matter how well we have put together a good life, no matter how hard we have worked to be healthy, wealthy, comfortable, have friends and family and successful with our career, something will inevitably ruin it. There's no amount of money or power or planning can prevent bereavement, dire illness, relationship betrayal, financial disaster, or a host of other troubles from entering your life. Human life is fatally fragile and subject to forces beyond our power to manage. Life is tragic. Welcome to church, everybody. <laughs> Tim Keller leads one of the, uh, or led one of the biggest churches in New York. Um, but, it, but I think he's absolutely right. And the sooner we wake up to that fact and accept that, probably the better. The truth is we all fall into one of three categories. Either we are suffering right now, okay? Category one, we're in a season of hardship. Might be big, might be small, but stuff's going on for us right now. Or if that's not us, probably we know someone. Someone who's close to us, someone we love and care about is in a season of hardship. Could be a family member, could be a close friend, could be a colleague, could be somebody in life group. Or for the three or four of us that don't know anybody in pain right now, truth is, there's probably going to be a season of hardship for either us or our friends sometime in the future. Suffering is inevitable. The key question is not whether we will suffer. The question is, how do we suffer well? Now, most religions or worldviews have an explanation for suffering. Hindus put it down to karma. Buddhists put it down to desire. Muslims talk about fate or destiny. And others suggest it's the result of a cosmic balance of good and evil. Whatever they happen to believe about God and the world, they see pain and suffering as a normal and necessary part of the human experience. And they make space for it and they allow it to at least have some kind of positive impact on character development. But the problem with the culture that most of us have grown up in, the Western secular culture, is that it teaches us that humans in the world have completely evolved without the help of God. That's what most people are saying out there. If you want um, a, a quote that kind of captures a bit of that, this is what Richard Dawkins says. Some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe has precisely the properties we should expect. If there is at the bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. This is not my view. This is not the Bible's view. This is the view of a, a secular atheist. In, in this worldview that basically encapsulates most of where most of us have grown up, everything is the byproduct of chance we are just a glorious accident. There's no creator. There's no meaning. There's no purpose behind the universe. And the problem with that philosophy is that there's no explanation and there's no accommodation for suffering or for pain either. And that's why most sociologists point out that in the lineup of worldviews, I can't believe I just said that, in the lineup of worldviews, it's like having a top five, isn't it? Um, the Western secular worldview is the worst for dealing with pain and suffering. At its best for us, in this worldview, suffering is an interruption. You know, I'm going to have a year off the point of life, or maybe two years, or just until I get through this disease, or until I get through college, or until I get through this job I hate, or until I get a much better job, or until I'm not single anymore, or until I have a spouse. Whatever the problem is, the problem, the suffering, is at its best an interruption between that gets in the way of us 
and the real meaning of life that we're trying to live out. Or, if it's, that, that's at its best, at its worst, in this worldview, suffering is an insurmountable obstacle. Anything that's permanent will just never go away. We're stuck in this forever. And that means that we can never actually achieve the real point of our lives. So at its best, it's an interruption. At its worst, it's an insurmountable obstacle. Whichever way, wherever you fall on that spectrum, suffering is inescapable. And our society has done its best to cut back on death and disease and injustice and pain and poverty. We've done our best to eradicate as much of that as we can. Truth is, we still can't avoid suffering. At some point, pain is going to slip through the cracks into our lives. And many people don't know how to deal with it. So what do we do? We medicate, we go to the doctor, get a pill, or we'll get over busy and work extra hours, get really into our hobbies. We make sure that we're just never alone, that we're always with people, that we never think deeply enough about what's going on and, and enough to deal with it, or we escape to our distraction of choice, be it alcoholic drink or a substance or a rhythm of life or a binged series on Netflix or whatever it is that we're doing to escape. And unless we're choosing to follow Jesus, then this is how we get through life. And this is how we deal with suffering. But I think there's another way of looking at this. You see, the world will tell us that suffering is meaningless and unexplainable and inescapable. And we just have to ride it out and deal with it the best way we can and try not to harm ourselves or others in the process. But the Bible tells us something completely different. The Bible tells us that God can identify with us in our suffering, and he can work in it for good. Sure, we can't escape it. That's true enough for all of us. But the Bible tells us we are not alone in our suffering. Paul is saying that here that when we suffer, Jesus is with us. He's not consoling us with a, there, there, you'll feel better soon. He's suffering alongside us. He's feeling our pain. He's identifying with it. He's remembering that anguished, universe-changing afternoon that he spent dying on the cross for us. 1 Peter says this, if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, then this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He's saying, I know what this feels like. I've been there. And that's very, very important. Paul also reminds us in his letter to the Romans, which was written after this letter in 2 Corinthians. He'd obviously developed the idea even more by this point. He says, um, we glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance produces character and character produces hope. In other words, the Bible tells us that there is a point and there can be a point to suffering um, that it can lead us to a richer and deeper place in our relationship with God and therefore in our lives. Forgive me if you've heard this story before, but many years ago, um, Joe and I, were, um, we had two children and we were expecting a third. And unfortunately, while we were away on holiday, Joe miscarried. And now that isn't unusual. Many people would have had an experience like this, but it hadn't happened to us before. And it was pretty traumatic for a few days. And uh, we didn't quite know what to do. We had our two kids on the beach. Um, they were, I was trying to play in the sea with them while Joe was quietly 
crying in the deck chair, basically. Um, and we, we were away in South Wales, and a couple of things happened, but we have essentially decided to, come, to cut our holiday short and come home a day early. Um, and so we did that, and we came back, and we just told one or two close friends, and we were part of leading the church in Birmingham at the time. And so we came into church on Sunday morning, and we did what we always did, which was stand near the front and worship God. And one of our friends said to us, gosh, you must, to, to Joe particularly, gosh, you must be very brave to come to church and face all these people when you're just in the middle of experiencing something really hard. And Joe said, where else would I be? I mean, where else could we be if we were suffering? I want to be with the people of God. I want to be in the Lord's presence. You know? We're developing some partner- a partnership with um, Open Doors. Open Doors are an amazing charity. They work with Christians in 70 different countries who are suffering because of their faith, who are being persecuted because they follow Jesus. It costs them something. These people are amazing. They do all sorts of amazing things like distributing Bibles and training leaders and supporting victims and advocacy and prayer and raising awareness. And whenever we hear from somebody who is a believer in the persecuted church, in a country where life is difficult to be a believer, you know, we, we ask, well, look, how can we pray for you? And the response is always the same, and it's not what you would think. The response is never, please pray that the suffering goes away. I've never heard that from a persecuted Christian. Typically, they will say something like, don't pray for our suffering to stop. Please pray for us as we endure our suffering so that we can grow in perseverance and character and hope and we can experience more of the glory of God. Now, I just, I don't know about you, but I find that incredibly humbling. Incredibly humbling. So Paul says that God is a God of all comfort and that Jesus is with us in our sufferings. And then just the last point is about us having strength in weakness. You see, there's a view that our suffering and our weaknesses and the challenges we're facing and the fact that we haven't quite got it all together can disqualify us from doing things that are significant for God. And that's just rubbish. There's a view that says that it's only the people who've got it all together that God can use to do amazing things. That's bobbins. Paul's opponents in Corinth, these, these, um, he, he refers to them ironically later in the chapter as super disciples with the sort of quotes on. Um, because, but they had argued, the strength of their argument was that Paul wasn't a real apostle. And that Paul wasn't worth following and his teaching wasn't worth following. And the reason for that is because he was poor. He didn't have any money. Because he was unimpressive. He was a short guy who wasn't very good at public speaking. Okay, And that he was suffering all the time. This was their argument. Don't listen to him. Why would you listen to him? He's always getting into trouble and just, you know, he's just not an impressive guy. And they, on the other hand, were well off and successful and therefore people should listen to them. It sounds like an early version of the gospel of wealth and prosperity to me. And it's this idea that Paul is countering really robustly through much of this letter. He makes a point that if he's suffering, it's for the sake of the gospel. That doesn't disqualify him from being apostle. That qualifies him for being an apostle the opposite is true Paul says my sufferings well he says our sufferings he says if we suffer but he means me if I'm suffering it's for your benefit he says it's the means that God uses to strengthen the believers in verse 6 he says if we are distressed 
it's for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it's for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, you're going to share in our comfort. He goes on to remind them of the recent troubles he experienced in Asia. Now, scholars aren't exactly sure what he's referring to here. It's not clear what happened. But he says, we were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure. We despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Paul is suggesting that whatever the situation was, it was pretty dodgy. He was in peril. But he then goes on to say, but this happened so that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. In other words, he's saying, even if we had died and we needed to come back to life, God would have raised us. Maybe. Maybe I'm, sim- maybe I'm reading that into the text, but that's the idea that I get. God has delivered them from deadly peril and he will do so again. These experiences that Paul has experienced have taught him to put his hope completely in God. And his argument is, it's my weakness as an apostle that makes me strong. Towards the end of the letter, if you jump ahead to the last couple of chapters, chapter 11 and chapter 12, Paul specifically starts to boast about his own sufferings. Just let me read you this list. This is from chapter 11, verse 23. Paul says, I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. 39 lashes, which are supposed to bring you to within whatever of your life. And he had that five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country. It sounds like a song, doesn't it? In danger at sea and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and often gone without food. I have been cold and naked besides Everything else, I face the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? If I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast of the things that show my weakness. And then, talking about greatest hits, for me, the, the, the biggest hit verse of this chapter comes, of this whole book, comes in chapter 12. He says, the thing is, Jesus said to me, my grace is sufficient for you because my power is made perfect in weakness. So I'm going to boast about my weaknesses. I'm going to glory in my weaknesses. We've sung this morning, the battle belongs to the Lord. It's only when we acknowledge that we are weak, flawed, imperfect people, that we are always screwing things up. When we acknowledge that, then God can start to use us. Then God can start to work with us. When we're pushing forward in God, we can expect opposition. We can expect hardship. We can expect suffering. But we're called to be overcomers in Christ. And as we stand with Jesus, glory comes. The world tells us that we, that success looks like shiny wealth, togetherness, being a certain shape, being well presented, being popular. The world tells us that that's what life is all about. 
that life is all about us, that we are the center of our world, that we are the product of our consumer choices, and that we can be whoever we are, whoever we want to be. The Bible says it's not about us, it's about God. And that we can boast in our weaknesses because that's how God's strength and power is best demonstrated. And that there is glory as we stand through and endure seasons of suffering. Why don't we stand together? There is time to respond, and I really believe that the Holy Spirit wants to come and do some things here. And so why don't we just open that up and open our hearts up to him? So Holy Spirit, you are so welcome here.